Well, hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. This is the show taken right out of the pages of Storyboard Memphis, the journal that brings you Memphis stories, ideas, connections in one place. And I am Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis, and your host for the next 30 or so minutes of Storyboard 30. My guest today, this gentleman, I, I refer to him as one of the three celebrity historians, mm-hmm. kind of along the lines of the three tenors, if you will. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> so this gentleman, alongside uh, Wayne Dowdy and Jimmy Ogle, you all know his voice. He is, like I said, I I consider him one of the three celebrity historians in town. This gentleman is an author. He's a filmmaker. He does presentation. He does guest speaking. He does a little gig on WKNO. And he's also a musician. So, of course, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Willie Bearden. Willie, welcome to the show. Well, Mark, thank you so much for having me. I, I thought you'd never have me on. <laughs> there you go. I was waiting. <laughs> I was waiting, yeah. Well, you know, I was waiting, too. I was, I was kind of, I thought I was waiting for the right opportunity or something, but yeah. I had the, the honor and pleasure of being on your dialogue show yeah. last year, yeah. right about this time. We had a great conversation that day. I remember it well. It's, it's always amazing. People come in and they go, gosh, this is an hour long. Wow. You know, what are we going to talk about? And then it seems like about eight minutes pass, and, and we say, well, thank you for tuning in. And people always go, wow, that was fast. But, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that when you have something to talk about, when you have a story, when you have things that interest you and that interest other people, you could fill up an hour, you could fill up 30 that, minutes or an hour very, very quickly. Yeah, that hour, that hour went by so fast, yeah. and it was so much fun. I'll tell you, from a personal standpoint, I, it was such a pleasure— for the fact that I was, I got to be on right after we had delivered the very first issue of Storyboard, right? And it was just that was just tons of fun. I'm glad we could we did it at that time because you know we we need to mark these things. That's one of the reasons I do my TV show, and that's one of the reasons why I always try to say yes if I possibly can to do anything like this because all of this winds up in the library, and I've said that a million times, but still, you know, in a hundred years, somebody will be able to come in and hear what we talk about today. Yeah, and that's the important things. So I'm, yeah. you know, I've taken you know photographs for years of Memphis, and people say, well, you know, what do you think about like Google? Google does this. They drive. You know what? I'm always worried that Google's going to be sold in ten years or twenty years or whatever. Or two years, and somebody's yeah. going to go, well, let's forget all those photographs. You don't need those things. Things residing in the public library, that's the most important thing. People of goodwill and people of who have who understand the historical significance of where we are and who we are, those are the things that we always need to keep in mind. You know, and, and we're so fortunate to have really, I mean, an outstanding library system oh, in Memphis. Yes. Yeah. Of course, listeners, you're listening to the Library Channel, but and you know this, but um, there's so much that goes on here. It's just remarkable. And it really so many is. Programs. It's it's something for everybody. And the Friends of the Library group, they do so much uh, with the books that people donate. Uh, yeah. They turn those into into programs that really have a great effect on Memphis. And, yeah. and, and so I, I really appreciate everything that happens in this building. Oh, absolutely. I, I was thinking about doing the show with you, and I, you know, one of the things I, I, I wanted to mention is the fact you're a busy man. You really have, and I mentioned all the, you know, the, the various uh, things that you do in addition to being a musician. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of listeners, of course, if, if you don't know who Willie Bearden is, you're I don't know where you've been, but the the WKNO spots that yeah. you know the the Wayne Dowdy, you know this day in history. Yeah, talk about those for a second. They gave me a call, and you know I I did those almost four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they gave me a call, and and it was one of those situations where NPR had given them back several minutes an hour. Which on radio is, if it's, I forget if it was four minutes or five minutes, so that's an eternity on the radio. So you have to figure out how to fill those. And so they asked me, uh, would I be willing to do a Memphis history moment? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd certainly be happy to. Wayne had just released his book, I think the week before I had been to his uh, initial book signing. To agree to write all these is it was just kind of yeah that <laughs> you just can't do it. I mean, this is what I do for a living, you know, and, mm-hmm. and as a volunteer effort, I just couldn't do that. I don't think anybody could. But but Wayne had done the work really, so I read one of those and recorded it in my studio, and it was like ninety five seconds, which was perfect because they wanted to lay it in that between ninety seconds and and two minutes. I called Wayne. I said, Wayne, can I read this? And he said, Absolutely. You yeah. can. Do you think they'd mention that it came from my book? I said they'll mention anything we want them to mention. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so they did. So I think it's been it, it's been good for Wayne as far as book sales go, and just people hearing what Wayne unearthed, mm-hmm. you know, about yeah. Memphis. And one thing I do want to say, and and I, I saw that, like, reading all 365 of those, uh, and it took me a year to do that. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> do a few every week. But what Wayne did, looking back through the newspapers, looking back through the archives, he found very few stories about women and people of color. I mean, you think about that. Yeah, yeah. Back then, back at the turn of the century or the 1880s, whenever, they wrote stories about white men, mm-hmm. and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so Wayne really had to dig very deeply to find things about women and people of color. He was in here uh, a few weeks ago. We were talking about his new book on, on mm-hmm. restaurants. You know, he did talk about the fact that to this day, mm-hmm. just as you just said, you know, that women and people of color are still under appreciate the stories are not told enough right. the contributions are not told enough i know that this year or maybe next year there's a going to be an unveiling mm-hmm. for the uh, suffrage yes uh, a historical marker yeah yeah in yeah, front of sure. the the u of m law building right there. paula casey's been working on that for a long time and that's going to be you know and that's something that I, I will say that while jimmy ogle was the county historian he really made it a point to have a a very wide vision of what we talk about and and, and what we say out loud. And by out loud, I mean by putting a a historical marker on the street and putting lots of them on there. I will say Mm -hmm. Jimmy Rout, who's our current uh, Shelby County historian, is doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I think we've certainly turned a corner and we've broadened this view and that's really what changes things. Where where is your your passion for Memphis history come from? I grew up down in the Mississippi Delta, and I just look at Memphis as an extension of the Delta. Mm-hmm. I'm, I and it's probably blasphemous to some people, but 
I have ne- I've lived here forever ever since 1971, yeah. and I've never thought of Memphis being a part of Tennessee. <laughs> I just don't, I, I, and I don't know why. I just don't think about you know Memphis being in Tennessee. And but I, agree, I, I would agree with you. Yeah, I yeah. really do feel like you know it's the regional capital. It's the capital of the Arkansas Delta and of and of West Tennessee and mm-hmm. of the Mississippi Delta. We are a place of story. I jokingly say they don't write books about South Dakota, and I'm sure they do write books about South Dakota. But when you look at the number of books that have been written about our home here, mm-hmm. it, it's truly amazing. Yeah. And people want to know our stories. That's why you could walk downtown right now and probably talk to 100 people within the next hour who are from somewhere else who are fascinated by who we are. Yeah. And so I, I think a lot of that kind of went into to my love for history and our story. But also, I think for so many years, we had this inferiority complex mm-hmm. that that there was a lot of shame attached uh, to being a Southerner. Mm-hmm. And, and that is so I d- tried to dig a little deeper. Yeah. I mean, I, I really started started reading for myself when I was about 13, I guess. And I read To Kill a Mockingbird, and, mm-hmm. and it, it had a profound effect on me. Mm-hmm. And I read, uh, there, was a, there was a book called Black Like Me, where this guy did something to make his skin turn dark, and he lived as an African-American for like a year or something. So, you know, I was reading those things, and then, you know, as a, when I was 18 years old, you know, Robert Kennedy came along, and just all of these things started happening. And people, when, when I was a kid, were registering to vote in the Delta and all that, and those things are, it really did have an effect on me. I saw that we had been wrong, and I didn't mind saying Hey, you know, we were wrong in this. Mm-hmm. It's not a real indictment of you, but we were wrong. And why don't we stop for a second and just say, "Listen, maybe I don't know the the language of this. I don't know how to address it. I don't know how to verbalize these things. But why don't we try to do that and let's let's kind of get a new start here." Yeah. And everybody has some skin in the game here. I think that's really what got me interested in our stories here. Uh, when I first started doing films, I had been doing training films and you know corporate things for years. I'd done films for International Paper and FedEx and Fred's Dollar Stores and just all of these all of these corporate clients. And I learned my craft that way. But mm-hmm. I kept thinking, I think I have a point of view. I think I have something that I need to say out loud. And so I started making films and looking at the very broad subjects that I've covered, like Overton Park. You can tell everything with the story of Overton Park. And I made that film in 2000 and 2001. It really tells the Memphis story. And I got to talk with so many fascinating people. You know, Maxine Smith talked about integrating Mm -hmm. the Overton Park shell. And just all of these things, the the, the I-40 controversy, just all of these things. But that just shows to me that we are resilient and that we can do the right thing. So all of those things kind of made sense to me. And being able to have the tools of a filmmaker, then, you know, I always tell people, you know, you make that film and it may have taken you a year, year and a half to make that film. But once it's done, you've built this little sailboat and it will sail forever. Yeah. 
And that is a great feeling to have this message, and which I, I feel like is a is a positive message, and and it's a message to inform people and to entertain and all of those things. But that message continues to work even if I'm not there saying those words. Yeah, you know. So I, I love I love that about making a film. Going back to what you said about uh, Memphis, you know, not feeling part of Tennessee. One of the things I always love to hear is the term Mid-South. Even if you just look at the map itself, you know, you realize there were right smack dab in the middle. Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, we are a Delta town. But I wanted to wanted to mention that. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, speaking of Mississippi, your upbringing really has a lot to do with your passion for storytelling. Talk about you. You uh, you grew up around a lot of folks that like to tell, you know, spin yarns. I did. Yeah. You know, my my mother came from a, a big family. They mm-hmm. had they had nine children. They lived over in the hills of Mississippi, over outside Carthage, Mississippi, which is over around Philadelphia. And there were lots of Native Americans living around there. So I always knew about the Choctaws, and I knew a lot of people who Mm -hmm. were Choctaws. And so there were always stories being told at the dinner table at my grandmother's house. My grandmother had a big, long porch and had 10 rocking chairs, and late in the afternoon, People would drop by and sit in those chairs and rock and talk, and mm-hmm. they talked about people. My mother was a beautician, so I grew up in the beauty shop. And let me tell you, <laughs> uh-huh. if yeah. you want to hear some stories, just go to the beauty shop. And uh, I, no one's ever uh, accused me of being quiet, but believe me, I used to be quiet at the beauty shop just so I could hear people talk without remembering that I was there. So, you know, all of that really resonated with me, and and I loved to hear people tell those stories. Uh, Later on, when I was about 13 or 14, I started hanging around the pool hall. Uh, You could hear uh, stories there. (laughs) Uh So I was just always around people who were also around people that they knew well. Yeah. There there weren't a lot of strangers around. You know, everybody in my little town, there were 2,500 people in Rolling Fork, my hometown, mm-hmm. and I knew everybody. Uh-huh. And so th- there weren't a lot of, you know, strangers coming in or new people. So you were always talking to somebody that you knew pretty well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you would hear these stories. And I kind of knew everybody's backstory, and I loved that. I want to... I want to know that about people. It's that it's that closeness that we recognize that people in other parts of the country really don't recognize. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's not better, it's just different. You know, we we prize stories. And if you can't take, you know, an extra 3 minutes to hear a story, then you're really missing out on something. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many people say that. So, oh, don't get him started. He'll just talk, you know. And you know what? You probably need to listen if people are talking. Yeah. So I really do. I, I, I love the storytelling tradition, and it's it's what uh, literature is based upon. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to tell you a story. And so I love that, and I always like to hear a good story. And consequently, people tell me stuff all the time. <laughs> all the time. I love it. Oh, yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storyboard 30. This is Mark Fleischer, your host. Storyboard 30 is on WYPL 89.3. We are sitting down with Mr. Willie Bearden. Those kinds of stories, hearing, you know, the stories in the pool hall, the stories in the beauty shop, they take on a mythic quality 
almost. Yeah, right? they do. Yeah. And, you know, if you hear them, because speaking from my own experience, too, you know, I, I heard, you know, stories about the Bronx and growing uh-huh. up from my extended New York family. And growing up in California, I heard these stories. But, but still, it takes on, it brings on a whole mythic quality. And if you, if you start hearing these stories at a certain age, mm-hmm. they almost become part of your DNA, yeah, oh, they absolutely do. I I, I have uh, I'm a kind of an amateur Faulkner scholar, and, mm-hmm. and I've read I've read a lot of Faulkner. I've read a lot of Faulkner criticism, and that's what Faulkner did. Mm-hmm. He talked about those things that he heard his grandparents talking about, mm-hmm. and he talked about all those myths. And things get changed around as you go a little bit, and people take license with some of those things, and that's okay too, mm-hmm. because the telling of the story and the teller of the story, they become mythical too. <laughs> and so uh-huh. I, I really I really do, you know, it, it's, it's a very deep subject. People have told stories around campfires forever, for mm-hmm. eons now, and that's how people learned to do things. I mean, it is... It is the it's the highest art. Uh, I, I got to be friends with uh, Shelby Foote, the, the great author, and he used to say, he said, storytelling's the highest art, mm-hmm. and I believe that. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. Not everybody's going to sit down and read a four hundred page book. They're just not going to do it. Not everybody's going to be able to give you a semester of their lives to go take a course on some. People will give me a PBS hour to watch one of my films because it's not even an hour. It's 56 minutes and 40 seconds, right? <laughs> so people will give you that. And and I will take that one step further. This kind of hit me like a ton of bricks a few years ago. I was at this party. Uh, it was around Christmas time. We were at the golf house in Overton Park. This friend of mine used to have mm-hmm. his party there every mm-hmm. year. Now, I had, I had made a few films at the time, and I'd done a couple of books at the time. That evening, since we were in Overton Park, I think people felt like they had to tell me something about Overton Park. I had probably five people walk up to me during the couple of hours I was at that, and they told me something about Overton Park that I had written. And, of course, I didn't say, hey, I wrote that. I wrote you know, that. But, you know, but you know that it's getting through to people. Yeah. It becomes theirs. And that's all we're all doing. I didn't make any of that up. Right. I took it, packaged it in a different way, yeah. and then passed it on. And then it becomes their information. And so I'm convinced that people love things like that. They want to hear things, and then they want to tell you about those things. That's an interesting dynamic that I never really thought about. And I, I realize I do the same thing. I'll read about something, and then you know, next thing you know, you're in a conversation with someone and say, did you know this? Where did you hear that? Well, I read it. I don't remember where I right. read it. And it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't where matter. you read it. It really doesn't because yeah. we are all just doing what we're supposed to do, which is passing it along. I mean, I always tell people, I'm not making this up. I didn't make any of this up. I may have put two and two together and come up with something, but mostly I'm telling you what I read yeah. And what people have told me and what I've noticed walking through the park or whatever, Elmwood Cemetery or wherever, I've made a film. Those things are out there, but it's up to us to pass those along. It's our sacred trust. I spend a lot of time at, at uh, Elmwood Cemetery because my wife's the executive director there. Right. And I was there last weekend, and I dressed up as Boss Crump. And yeah, yep. We had a great time, but I was talking to people, and I told people this, and it really resonated with people. I said, you know, they say a person dies 
twice. Certainly the first time, you know, when you leave this mortal plane and mm-hmm. when you're when you're gone from your body, you're not in attendance anymore. Right. But the second time, and maybe the most important time that you die, is when the last person who knew your story dies. Oh, wow. So isn't that powerful? That's very powerful. So, yeah. wow. you know, what we try to do at Elmwood and what they try to do is keep people's stories alive. That's why you can go there and rent an audio tour and hear about all these people or take a, a walking tour or go to a lecture or something. And I think that's what we're all trying to do. Oh, we're yeah. trying to keep people alive. I was thinking about uh, what you said about, you know, carrying the story on and all that. It's like it's just it goes back to the campfire. Yes. You know, stories of the campfire. Yes. And the being completely taken away by a story, mm-hmm. completely taken away. And the same thing can happen when you're at Elmwood, for example, mm-hmm. and you hear these stories about these folks. And you say, oh, I've, I knew about this, but I never knew that. I never knew that. Never right. knew this. You know, didn't know that they had this impact on this neighborhood or this mm-hmm. development or, or whatever. Yeah. You know? It's powerful and important stuff. Those are the things that we all ought to know. Every school kid ought to be able to recite all these things. Yeah. You know, and I, so I'm glad that schools bring their kids to Elmwood, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's such an important thing. And it's something that I, we can never lose sight of that fact that really all we are are just kind of the culmination and, and the combination of all of our stories. You mentioned earlier, too, about, you know, stories is how we learn, yeah. you know, and you, and you think about a grandmother telling a granddaughter, this yeah. is how it was, and this yes. is how it was, and this is how we do things, and right. this is how you should be doing things. Right. And, and it becomes a story, and, and they might tell a story about their grandmother or yeah. their mother or whatever. And, you know, as a child... You know, you look up at your grandmother, and and, and then she's telling a story about your great-great-grandfather or something, and you go, wow, there's your story. That's right. And then suddenly you don't even know it, but you're learning something. You're learning about a way of life, or you're learning about something that, oh, you know, I should know how to do this. You're able to reach back for those generations Mm -hmm. and have a real connection to those people. It, It really, really is important. I, I, I like the fact that people, that they have these storytelling conventions now and things. And so it, it really is, I think a lot of people are aware that it's the thing that we need to do. We need to keep telling those stories. One thing that I also think about sometimes is that, you know, we talk about truths, but I like to talk about kind of the fluid nature of truth. You know, if we think about 100 years ago from right now, women could not vote. Right. Now, people laugh that off all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So, no, no, no. Women could not vote. Women could not open a business. Women could not sign a contract, all of this. So you think, you know, that back then that was the truth. Mm-hmm. Whether it was right or wrong, it was the the common truth back then. And these things change. So that always gives me hope for the future, that we look at these things that we may think are outrageous ideas now, but if we look a little deeper— Mm-hmm. And we are people of goodwill, and we all need to be people of goodwill. And that's just using your compassion and, and using uh, all the things that, that we're supposed to have for other people. So, But if, if we have that, then our truths can change. And I really do like that fact. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, there were still water fountains for white people and water fountains for black people. 
for some reason, I used to I used to drink out of the black water <laughs> just because I could, <laughs> you know. But you know mm-hmm. that that's kind of crazy. But there are people who recognize what those truths are, whether they're right or not, you know, and will go against a lot of those things. And yeah. that's that's how things change. And I think just to be a person of goodwill and and to think of yourself as. Hey, you know what? I want to I want to be an upstander here. I want to do the right thing. And that that changes people's lives and it radiates from you and makes you feel better. You know, sometimes I think about these fluid truths as kind of like it's like a foundation mm-hmm. in a sense where you think, well, my truth, let's say, you know, women not voting, for example, yeah. well, that's part of the foundation. That's part right. of the fabric. That doesn't mean it's right. Exactly. Maybe this foundation needs to be shaken up a bit because those those things are fluid as well. Talk about some of the all the other things that you do. I mean, I mentioned the very beginning, but you know, you've got your hands in so many different places all around storytelling. I would have to say, yeah, even yeah. even the music. Yeah, even, oh yeah, even being yeah. a musician, you're I telling stories. So. You know, I I just I look back in the last few weeks at the things I, I've done. You know, and, and I get to do things I like, and mm-hmm. I get to be with. I always tell people I get to do cool things with cool people every day. Today, you're that cool person. <laughs> but like last week, I did a talk down in Natchez, Mississippi, at the uh, conference on rural tourism, mm-hmm. and it was it was people from Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. It was really fun to be able to talk to those folks and to see what they're doing, but then to talk to them about what I see. There's something about standing there in front of 125, 150 people, and when you get that that energy, when you get those smiles, when you get those good vibes coming your way, it really does energize you. And you know that you are spreading your good news to other people, and then you hope they take that back to their communities. And every time I do a talk, and I, and I, I do talks, I don't know, three or four times a month, just to mm-hmm. all sorts of different groups. I have a, a slide in, in my uh, PowerPoint presentation, and I, and I tell people how kind Shelby Foote was to me. And I tell them, I said, that encouragement may be the greatest gift you can give another human being, because Mr. Foote encouraged me to continue doing what I was doing. As you well know, none of this stuff pays great, you know? <laughs> I mean, and nobody yeah. nobody asks you to do it. I mean, nobody ever walked up to me and go, hey, man, you look like you're a smart guy. Why don't you make some films? Nobody's going to do that. You have to get out there and do the first one and do the second one. And lots of times you're doing it out of your own pocket. I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> you You have created something here that has a lasting effect on who we are and what we do. You know, storyboard is a wonderful thing. But but it's not easy. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, but I can tell you, I know this, it's not easy. And, and, you know, you have to be passionate about this. And I think with a group of passionate people pushing in all directions, then you really come up with something unique. And yeah. that's what I want to do. I want to be a part of something positive and something unique. You have a website, and I mention that because yes. people can find not only where you are, what yeah. you're doing, but also they can seek you out through the website. Yes, uh, it's uh, Willie Bearden, Willie with a Y, 
B-E-A-R-D-E-N.com or WilliamBearden.com. I've posted all my films on there, and you can watch those for free. Just go to the the Books and Films uh, tab there. And just, you know, if you want to see, you know, what I said about Overton Park or Elmwood Cemetery or the Memphis Garage Bands or the story of Cotton or... Delta, you know, any any of the things I've made, every film I've made is on there because I want people to see those. There's really no sense in making a film if you show it one time wherever at a film festival and then nobody ever sees it again. You know, you've shown maybe 85 people your film, but I want people to see these things because I know this to be true. People come to me all the time and say, man, I saw that thing you did on blah, 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 and it was great. You know, I didn't know that. And that's what you really want to hear as a writer or as a filmmaker or whatever you do. I didn't know that. Thank you. You know, that sort of things. I love that. So talk about um, your, where your passion for filmmaking came from because, yeah. you know, you grew up learning to spin a good yarn from, from all the storytelling. Right. But then – at some point, as you got into your 20s and 30s, you yeah. became interested <clears throat> kind of, um, kind of uh, by, by the atmosphere around you. You became interested yeah. in film. Yeah. So yeah. you started out on, on – you were working on Film Row there for a while. Yeah, I, I worked at 781 South Main Street, uh, mm-hmm. which was Motion Picture Lab, MPL. Yeah. And for many, many years, just about anybody who was in the film business in Memphis came through MPL. Mm-hmm. And we were a post-production house. And that was back then, everybody shot 16-millimeter film, and then they would send it to us. We would develop that film, and we would make a print of that and then send that print to people. And that's what they would cut. They would tape splice it together and then send that back to us maybe six months later or two months or a mm-hmm. week or whatever. And we would take that, and then we would take their original film and cut it together so it could be printed. And we would also make all the titles. We would do the color correction and all that. So I went to work at, at MPL in 1978. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Mark, is the first thing I had ever done that I really understood. <laughs> you know, I mean, after being there for a few months, I understood top to bottom how this worked. Uh-huh. And and it kind of it scared me a little bit because I'd never really understood anything that well. And so uh I was a color timer. I fixed color on on films. And uh, and then they put me uh as an editor and so I actually cut film and spliced it together. And I used to watch all the the initial prints we would make and watch those for mistakes and things and, you know, give it the okay to go out the door or go back and, and, you know, and fix those mistakes. So I really learned a lot then. Then they uh, put me on the road as an account exec. Now, I had to put on the tie and suit, and uh, this was in 1981, and uh, I traveled – all over the Midwest. I was always in, you know, Pittsburgh or Milwaukee, uh, Omaha, Des Moines, Kansas City. I was all over the place working with people who were our customers. Uh-huh. And it may be uh, 
Christian filmmakers who were making those what we call two reelers, those hour long films on two reels. Yeah. And, or it may be I worked with the NCAA a lot on, you know, they did a ton of films on how to officiate softball and how to do this, you know, all those things. Uh, we worked with a lot of student filmmakers, a lot of universities, a lot of uh, medical technology, just everything. So as I got out there, and, you know, y- you go somewhere, and after you've been there two or three times, you know, in a year, you get to know people. Yeah. And so people would say, hey, Willie, why don't you come on location with us? Mm-hmm. So I would go out and watch them. And after a couple of years of watching people, I started thinking, oh, I don't think I'd put the camera there. <laughs> or, or, or I don't think that lighting is quite right, you know. or. Uh-huh. And it kind of critiquing what they were doing yeah. and watching directors and see what they did and see how they how they interacted with their actors. Mm-hmm. And some were good and some were bad and some were, you know, just kind of indifferent. But yeah. I learned so much from that. So I did that for seven years. Mm-hmm. And then I decided it was time to, to do my own thing and start my own company. Yeah. And I just kind of made that leap. I felt like I knew what I was doing. I'd been writing some jingles. So I'd kind of been in the, you know, I wanted to do more creative work. I, I, I wrote jingles for a long time. And I did the uh, music package for the Kansas City Royals for like 18 years, <laughs> which was really cool. And we would cut it here in Memphis, and I would get people like Jimmy Jameson to sing and just, you know, Jimmy Davis and just uh, Reba Russell, just all these folks, you know. But but I loved doing that. And so it all seemed connected to me, mm-hmm. you know, doing music stuff, uh, doing film, writing, uh, editing. Uh, all of that seemed absolutely connected, mm-hmm. and it still does to me. It seems like exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I just got into that, and, and after about, I don't know, seven or eight years maybe of doing that, I thought, okay, I'm going to try my hand at documentaries. And I did my first couple out of my own pocket yeah. because, like I said, nobody's going to ask you to do that, right? Yeah. And you have to start with film number one. You don't You don't get to start with number nope, three. got to be a number one. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you're doing these things. But then after that, what I saw from doing that kind of work is I started getting jobs uh, telling stories in museums. Okay. So it completely it completely changed my career. Yeah, um, I started working with Scott Blake, who is a brilliant uh, uh, exhibit designer. We did the Cotton Museum uh, downtown at at Front and Union. We did the the Last Wonders series. We had the uh, the the Treasures of the Medici. We did. Uh, Gosh, we did the Elvis Presley Birthplace Museum. We've done three big projects for them, you know. So I've gotten to write and make films about Elvis Presley, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just done tons of things. The Blues uh, Hall of Fame down South Main Street, uh, the Gateway to the Blues Museum on Highway 61 in Tunica, the Tunica River Park, uh, the Biloxi Lighthouse. I mean, I've just done so many of these things. And the great thing about doing museum work is that you take a deep dive into this and you want to explain it to people. Mm -hmm. So I always, when I'm doing a museum project, I always think, okay, a car drives up and parks in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. There are four people in this car. 
Three of the people are going, why did you drag me here? How much does this cost? How long are we going to be here? And the other person, though, is right where they want to be on the face of the earth, you know? so And they're the most excited. That's like, right. And yeah. so I'm always trying to please those other three people. Yeah. I know that that one person, right. they're right where they want to be. Yeah. But I'm always trying to think, okay, how do I how do I hook this person on this story that they're not interested in in the least? Mm-hmm. So when they walk out, they go, well, I'm glad we went there. Yeah. So I'm, that's, that's always what I'm trying to do, and it is in storytelling. Yeah. You know, I um, took, took my son to the, to the Cotton Museum uh-huh. a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things that I really love about any kind of interactive exhibit, one is if it's in the actual location. Right. For one. Right. Yeah. But the other is just simply a wow factor. Sure. You know, you walk in the Cotton Museum and you do. Mm-hmm. You look around and you look you look at the, the upper floor and you look at all the, the figures up there. Right. And it is. It's a wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then you do become absorbed in the entire culture. Right. You know, as if you are there, which I'm, I'm sure is, yeah. was part of your – part of the, the mission for that. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's it's an entire absorption, and it's no, I, I go back to the idea of storytelling, mm-hmm. absorbing the the viewer, the reader, you know, whomever. Right. Um, is complete absorption, and you you can, you learn so much. That's right. That and it doesn't yeah. matter if you're, you know, if you're from Des Moines, Iowa, you're coming down here. You can you're taking this deep dive into Southern culture. Yeah. And to know about Southern culture, you you or to know about the blues or anything like that, you've got to know the story of cotton. Yeah. And so. You know, all of those things, and, and I think that's kind of a sacred trust that people give us. People, you know, say, hey, listen, we're entrusting this story with you. You know, can can you explain this to people? Mm-hmm. And yes, I can, you know. And when the exhibit designer tells me, okay, you're going to write the text for this text panel here. Now, the way we have this designed, you only have 225 words to use. Can you explain X in 225 words? And so, yeah, you you really do. And and there's a lot of work that goes into that, you know. Mm I think, you know, for instance, uh, the Cotton Museum is, you know, I think we did nine films, probably 40 oral histories, uh, a ton of writing. You know, we worked for a year and a half on that thing. But I'm so I'm so pleased that right this second as we're sitting here, Mm -hmm. there are people at the Cotton Museum watching those films and reading that text on the walls and and listening to those people who had something to do with the cotton business for the oral history. So there again, you know, your knowledge knowledge is out there for anybody to get, and and I love that. Yeah. In addition to that, your voice— is out there as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 that's you know that is the thing. I mean, I, I you do the voice. I'm. I should point that point out that uh, you yeah. do some of the the voiceover stuff for for that as well. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. We were uh, after we finished this thing. We we wanted one more little thing. Of course, we had no money left over. We kept kind of giving them different things, and so I said, "Well, I'll do the voiceover for this." Uh, but yeah, you know. When you go into something like this, you never really know what you need to do until you're into it. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always been of the opinion is, you know what? 
you're buying me. That's mm-hmm. what you're, you know, and I don't care if, well, you're adding this or taking this away or whatever. I'm I'm not going to nickel and dime anybody on that. I'm just saying, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to tell the story. We're not going to do the Cotton Museum number two. You know, this yeah. this is what we're going to yeah. do this, and we're going to do it one time, and we're going to do it right, and hopefully it will last for a good 25 years and then mm-hmm. they can tell the rest of the story. Yeah. But that's why that's why we're here and and why we're doing what we do. And and yeah. and I love that. I love being a part of that. Yeah. You know, and the 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 love you express right now, you know, you can see it in all of the work that you do. And Thank you. and also in the I really uh if you if folks listening, if you ever get a chance to to go to uh any kind of presentation or panel discussion or whatever that you're a part of you you know they should go because i've you know you bring a a whole different flavor and element to these discussions where what i think one of your most powerful tools you personally is is bringing history to the average person yes you know um and an understanding you know, because so so often we learn history from the perspective of Congress did this and the president did this, right. and the the president of this corporation did this. Where's the everyman in all this? Yep. You know, yeah. and and you bring you really do you bring the everyman, man, woman, African American, whomever you bring the everyman to to every one of these stories. Well, thank you, and I've certainly I've I've tried to be aware of that, and I will say this. Uh, Back when I first started doing this in the late 90s, mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of people doing this. And so it, it was like our story was the private – I guess it was like just the the private uh, possession of the PhDs. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. I mean I, I, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I yeah. do not know how many canons were at Shiloh. I do not know, you know, a lot of these things, and th- and that's what research is for, and that's what what scholarly writing is. But th- mm-hmm. there was a whole, you know, everybody else was missing out of out of the the story because there was nobody telling these stories unless you would read that eight hundred page book or unless you would give somebody, you know, right. a, a semester of your life or several, you know, and most people can't do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so. I I think uh, along with like Wayne and Jimmy Ogle and uh, Jay Killingsworth and 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 uh, uh, Bonnie Corvallis, I mean there there uh, there are people out there who kind of got it at the same time, mm-hmm. and we never sat down and had a meeting. But but when we would talk, we'd say you know this is there is a need for people. To understand these things now, maybe twenty years ago that need wasn't there, mm-hmm. or they thought they knew all these things or whatever. But yeah. but at that time, and I think we all reacted in our own unique ways to to bring that to the public. Yeah, yeah, and and you know that that journey and that effort it never stops. No, it, it never stops because yeah. you know you've got you know you've got kids who are in the twenties who are coming along and. They haven't heard these stories. Right. They don't know this history. Right. They don't know that what's happening in the city right now yep. happened before. Yep. <laughs> yep. You know, You're that right. the decisions being made right now, these are decisions or mistakes that were made before. Right. You know, and and history tells us these things. History reminds us, 
you know, mistakes have been made. Yes. And yes. And and the people the people who who stand up and and try to set these things right, mm-hmm. you know, those are the people who are remembered. Mm-hmm. I mean, you th- think about it. I mean, I I can't tell you who was a, you know, and I'm not picking on city council members, but I can't tell you who was a city council member, you know, 50 years ago or 80 years ago or 100 years ago. But you think of the people who are remembered, though, yeah. and those people were the people who were the upstanders, uh-huh. people who people who maybe took. You know, an alternate view of things, but they turned out to be right, or they turned out to be kind of right. You know, my, not everybody. You know, I, I think we live too much in a black and white world. Yeah. You know, if people have these thoughts, then let's listen. Let's listen to people. Let's give everybody kind of a fair shake when it comes to these things that 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 may go against some things we believe or things that we have believed all our lives. Yeah. It's almost like. Hey, folks, put on this other lens for a minute. Right. Put on these other set of glasses for a minute. Right. You might see things just a little That's differently. Right. And, you know, and you know what? It, it, do, it doesn't hurt to say, you know what? I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. We were wrong. You know, just to admit that and, yeah. and just go on. Yeah. You know, and I, I heard something that uh, President Obama said uh, yesterday, and he was talking about kind of this gotcha kind of age that we live in now and people being so woke that all they have to do is is point their finger at you and say, well, you did this. And that is true. But he was saying, you know what? We are all human. Mm-hmm. And, and if we understand that about one another and if we all understand that we can all change, then, you know, it's it's not so you know, then that kind of turns the noise down some. And a lot of times that's what we're fighting against is the noise. Oh my gosh. That is so that is so true and there's, you know, seemingly more noise now than ever before. Yeah. You know, and yeah. we're talking about just information noise. Yes. You know, device yes noise, Facebook noise, you yes. know, it can go on and on. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to I think you have to I I don't know what it would be like to be you know, a young person, somebody, you know, 19, 20 years old, whatever, and to be faced with all this. Now, I feel like I have a I have a fairly good foundation. I've read a lot. I've thought about this a lot. You know, I've written about things, that, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of close to, you know, my fundamental mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, where do you get that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's, it's a very scary thing. Yeah. Kind of goes back to the, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, granddaughter talking to grandma. Yes. You know, right, and, right. you know, how, how does grandma think? Is that's how I'm supposed to think? You know, is this, is this right. how I do things? Right. You know, and it's kind of the same type of thing. Right. If you're, if you're learning um, all those things from Facebook, mm-hmm. let's say, yes. as an example, or whatever. Right. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be lost real quick. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Uh, I think the thing I think I think what people can do is if you approach situations, problems, uh, anything like that, if you approach it with compassion, mm-hmm. and if you approach it with the thought that you know everybody has a bad day, everybody everybody at some point tries to defend 
what they know is not right. <laughs> you know, and that's the yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. we point our fingers, and people people know they're wrong. I mean, I talk to people all the time, and they have these crazy beliefs, and I'm thinking, you know, you're wrong, but you can't say it. I wish you could say it, uh-huh. but if if we look upon even those people uh with compassion and try to try to make it easier for them to be a part of humanity <laughs> then then i i think we're doing what we should do yeah you know yeah. i i don't you know i, I don't want to be mad at people yeah. i i don't want to i i don't want to you know harbor you know ill will toward other people but but also i want people to be able to accept that maybe their ideas are wrong mm-hmm. and and that and that they're not being good people when they dismiss a whole group of people or whatever you know yeah. and it happens on yeah. both sides yeah it definitely happens on both sides but but i just think you know it's okay to be wrong it's okay to admit you're wrong uh, my okay. wife always says Says, you know, she, she'll ask somebody or ask me to do something. She said, you know what? No is a perfectly acceptable answer. And and I like that because I always, you know, I'm a people pleaser. And I always want everybody to be fine with everything and cool with all this. But, but you know, no is an acceptable answer. And I don't know is an acceptable answer. Yes, that, that's right. You know, if you if you put me on the spot and I've got to tell you all my beliefs in, you know, 30 seconds, yeah. then then you know, I, I don't think I'm going to say anything. Yeah. Because everybody has questions and and everybody should have questions. Yeah. You know, I've lived on this earth for 69 years and I probably have more questions now than I have answers, but I know that I'm wrong a lot. I mean, if you look back at what you do, you yeah, know that yeah. you know you make mistakes, and mm-hmm. and you're you know maybe your initial ideas are just wrong sometimes, and that's okay. Yeah, you know, forgive yourself, be kind to yourself, be kind to other people, and and you'll do okay. Yeah, I know it's like saying you know if you're you're sitting there and you're 90 years old and you say you know what I made a mistake I'm I may be 90 but I'm still learning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously. Exactly. You, know. you have to keep learning. And, and I think that, that just being open to ideas and open to what new people and young people are, are bringing to the table, you know, and, you know, keep your eyes open for all this. You know, things generally get better. Yeah, I think, and 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 people generally get smarter, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, but but you have to be open enough to allow that to come into you, into your personal space here. So yeah. I'm, 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 I feel good about humanity. Some not all the time, but but I do feel good about humanity. I think there are enough people who are upstanders and people who are doing the right thing uh, to uh, to to make us better people. You know, I, I see all these things. I, I've, I've been uh, going out and, and shooting some of the uh, the historical marker unveilings. Just, yeah. I would always see people with cameras there, but I would never see anything online. And so <laughs> I thought, you know, it's going to be my goal. I'm going to go shoot this, and I'm going to edit it this afternoon and have it online by tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and that's not a hard thing to do mm-hmm. for me. So so it, right. it might be hard for other people, but but for me, that's not a hard thing. So I've been doing that, but. What I'm seeing is that we're recognizing people 
that 15 years ago we would have never recognized. And we as a people, right. we as citizens are doing that. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that we're saying those things out loud. Yeah, yeah. And holding on to whatever came before us. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's all here for us, you know. It, it's all here for us. I just think we have, to, we have to be smart enough to keep our eyes and ears open. Well... Willie Bearden. Are we done? <laughs> it seems like five minutes passed. I know. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, Willie Bearden, author, filmmaker, speaker, voiceover artist, musician. Could go on and on. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and thank you for doing this. And thank the library for supporting these kinds of things. I, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks again to Jeff Hewlett and his fine acoustic guitar work, to producer Vance Durbin, and to WYPL broadcast manager Tommy Warren, to WYPL and the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, and to you listeners and supporters of the library and FM 89.3. We'll hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more conversation with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better. Memphis, make it a great week. Mm-hmm.